I want to introduce you to a couple of brothers in the Lord. This one I've known for a while and consider him one of my dearest friends. Uh, Dusty is the pastor at Redeemer just down the street. And this is my new friend, Norman, who I just met yesterday, who ministers in India. And so you may remember Greg Miller going to India near the Pakistan border, serving in churches in that area. And Norman is one of the pastors and ministers in that area. And I wanted you to get a chance to know them and hear from them. Um, Norman, your wife's name again, tell me. Supriya. I want you to pray specifically for Norman's wife, Supriya, because she is battling cancer, undergoing chemotherapy, and the Lord has been so faithful to give her strength and endurance and is progressing, and so we want to remember her specifically. But I want you to see these guys put a name, a face with a name, and I want you to pray for their ministries because these people are leading ministries that worship God, that love the Lord, that are drawing people to Christ, and they are true brothers in the Lord, and I'm very grateful them, for them both. So if I could, let me pray for them together. God, thank you so much for my friends, my brothers, Dusty and Norman. I thank you for each of their ministries, one down the street and another across the globe. And I know that you are at work in each of their lives and their families and in their churches. May your will be done and may your name be made known throughout the uh, people in which they serve. May they truly follow you and trust you with all their hearts. Strengthen them and encourage them. And may they have great hope because of faith and trust in you. I lift them up in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Love you, guys. You bet. Well, as we get started, I want to uh, remind you as we're kind of finishing up our study of uh, 1 Corinthians about What's the most important? I don't want us to miss the, the big picture in the midst of all the details. Uh, if you recall, throughout Paul's letter, he's been addressing kind of an ongoing list of concerns with this church in Corinth. As we've learned, this is a body of believers who are deeply religious, but spiritually immature. That there's a lot of activity going on within this church in Corinth, but not a lot of spiritual growth. And one of the main reasons that that's the case is because they have become enamored with too many of the wrong things. They are working real hard to customize their faith in order to minimize the inconvenience of that faith. And in the end, they're allowing themselves to become distracted by the ways of the world instead of being guided by the truths of God. And so Paul, as he finishes up this letter to the Corinthians, wants to make sure that they don't miss the main point, that they don't miss what should be the very priority of their lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. He reminds them about the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what difference that should make in our lives. So as you look at chapter 15, which I think is a glorious chapter, you see that story of what Jesus did in the past, what that should do in our present, and the hope that we have in the future. And it's all built on the resurrection as the foundation of our faith. You'll remember, Paul says, if that's not true, then our faith is in vain. And sin continues to reign. But as one of the many witnesses, as he has described to us in chapter 15, Paul knows firsthand 
that Jesus Christ has in fact risen from the dead. And in doing so, he has broken the power of sin. Paul is teaching us that when we believe that's true, then we are putting our faith in the understanding that what has been made possible through Christ is now made possible for us. There's a passage in Romans, we've looked at it before, Romans chapter 6, that I think does a, a great job of describing what Paul is saying. He says, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done, done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. The point here is that, that a life to surrender that, to Christ is no longer a slave to sin. What is true for Christ by faith has become true for you. We're a new creation. The Bible says that the, the old is gone and, and the new has come. And so with that in mind, we now enter into our passage where, where the Corinthians are beginning to wonder, well, if that's true, if we are a new creation in Christ, does that mean that it ends when we die? Is this all that there is or is there something more? And we've learned that some of them have begun to doubt the resurrection because Quite frankly, in their minds, it didn't make sense. Now, for you and I, we may hear that and think, well, that's, why would that be? And I think it's important for us to appreciate a perspective from which they come based on the world in which they lived in during that time. And in particular, we need to understand the burial practices of the first century, okay? Which are much different than what we know today, and they're not practiced by and large anywhere in the world but back in the first century here's what would happen literally just seconds minutes after a person died they would take them and they would wash their body they would then wrap them in linen clothes and then they would cover them with a multitude of spices and there's a practical reason for that because after about a year to two years they would go back into the tomb where that body had been laid which had now decomposed all flesh and muscle gone and all that's left are bones and they take those bones and they put them inside what's called an ossuary it's a, a bone box I have a picture when we were in Israel we walked by and you can kind of see those little square boxes those are ossuaries and they would take the bones of the dead they would place them in this ossuary and some of them were quite intricate because they had markings on them that would attribute them to a specific person in the museum there in Israel, I want you to see this one. Isn't that beautiful? It's a box for bones, but it's beautiful. And that box is, belongs specifically to Caiaphas, the high priest during Jesus' time. That was his ossuary. Now, I want you to gain some appreciation for that so that you might better understand why it was hard for the Corinthians to understand the reality of the resurrection. Because they saw with their own eyes, having gone into that tomb, that the body no longer exists. So how can the resurrection be true? 
make a little more sense now? Well, Paul will go on not to describe in detail how it happens, but he will make a very clear case that it can because of the one in whom it is all made possible. And that's what we'll walk through in our passage this morning. So before we do, let's offer this time to the Lord. God, we come to you knowing that our understanding is ultimately based in fullness, not in part, on the enlightenment through your spirit that opens our eyes, that opens our ears, that opens our heart to know, to understand the truth that is ultimately eternally significant. And so this morning, would you please, by your grace, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart that understands and can, in faith, believe in the truths of your word in life-changing ways. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, if you're not already there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll pick up where we left off last, verse 35. If you want to read along with me, uh, it's uh, verse 35. Paul continues. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Again, keep in mind their experience, and now you understand the question. You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each the seeds of a body of its own. To begin with, the Corinthians are trying to apply human logic to understand a divine truth. They're saying to themselves, I've seen what happens to that body, and I cannot imagine, I don't comprehend how a body that no longer exists can then be resurrected to a new life. Their conclusion goes something like this, if I can't explain it, then I'm not going to believe it. But Paul warns them, don't be foolish. Because you cannot expect human logic to give you an understanding of a divine truth. Now, we understand that even in practical terms. How many of you in this room this morning believe in gravity? Raise your hand. Every person in the room needs to raise their hand because nobody's going to climb to the Empire, top of the Empire State Building and jump off to test to see if gravity really works. You're not going to do it. You're going to believe that it's true, right? Now, of those who raised your hand, how many feel like you can adequately explain the scientific rationale of exactly how gravity works? Probably most, not all of us, probably none of us, right? We might give it a fair attempt, but we're not going to be able to explain it. But we are convinced that is true. And if that's the case, for a physical reality like gravity, how much more so for a spiritual reality like the resurrection? You see, human logic does not determine the validity of a divine truth. In fact, the reality is... (laughs) Our finite minds simply cannot fully comprehend an infinite God. This is an issue of faith. 
So Paul goes on not to explain in some human logic detail about how exactly the resurrection happens. He will take a spiritual perspective pointing us to the one in whom we give the responsibility to and prove that it can. So instead of some deep theological explanation, Paul turns to a very simple observation. He looks at the seed and he says, think about it. We all know that that seed placed in the ground is transformed to become something new and very different than what we see in that seed. Okay, This morning, you should have a bag of seeds. Everybody get your bag of seeds. If you would, I want you to look at that bag of seeds. And if you didn't get one, make sure you grab one on the way out. But for those of you who have one, I want you to look at the bag of seeds. And if you would do me a favor, I want you to do something for me. If you could, pick out the seed that looks like the California bellflower. Go to the next slide. I'm going to help you out a little bit. Okay? California bellflower. That's the top left. If you can't see that one, then pick out the one that looks like the creeping daisy. All right? No luck there. How about the Chinese forget-me-not? No? Can you not tell which seeds those are? The fact is, none of those seeds look anything remotely like the flower that they will one day become. The seed is transformed into something altogether different and far more beautiful than what you have there in your hands. And another thing I want you to consider, who originally determined what that seed would become? Look again at verse 38. Talking about that seed, says, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. The transformation from seed to plant is divinely ordained. And it's not what that seed does to to sprout new life on its own. It's not what it does. It's what's done to it that makes it come to life. And so it is with the resurrection. Like that seed, we are transformed into something new and altogether different than anything we've ever experienced in this body of flesh and bones, which is just like that seed. It's transformed and that transformation is divinely ordained and it's really not something that we can fully explain but we can believe with great conviction based on the faith of the one who makes it happen we can see what god does in something as simple as a seed being transformed into a flower and know that there really are no limits to the creative power of the God we serve, right? I want you to look at how Paul continues in verse 39. He says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, the glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Paul continues to make his point by shifting from the imagery of agriculture now to to look at the creative design in the earth below and the heavens above. And he's explaining the the great creative diversity that, that exists in all those realms. It seems like he 
kind of progresses in complexity as he moves from humans. I, I think if it were me making the list, I'd have been a little more specific. In, in terms of complexity, I would have started with the female gender of the human species, <laughs> then the male, animals, birds, fish. So Paul wants us to understand that, that God has designed each of these things to, to flourish in the environment in which he created them to exist. But living inside that boundary is important. Because if you think about it, what happens if you take a fish created to live in an aquatic environment in the water and you throw him on dry land? He's going to die. Because that's not where he was created to flourish. He was created to flourish in the ocean, in the water. And so it is with us. How many of you like to watch those nature shows on TV? I'm a big fan of nature shows. I could watch them all the time. In fact, uh, recently, uh, if you watch the Discovery Channel, they had Shark Week. Anybody watch Shark Week? Every time I hear that, I think of Suzanne Tapp. If you didn't know this about Suzanne, she's a big fan of Shark Week, right? And I think Holly Jacobs is too, so little known facts that you might find interesting. But I watched Shark Week this week, or, uh, recently and, and learned a few things, some of which I already knew but are fascinating, like the fact that Sharks do not have a single bone in their body. It's total cartilage. And what that allows them to do is be very light and very mobile, very fast in the water. One thing I did learn is that the Mako shark can swim at speeds of up to 50 miles per hour. That's amazing. How about that cool-looking hammerhead shark? You know, everybody knows what that hammerhead shark looks like. You know the reason it's shaped like that? Whenever it's down near the ocean floor where it spends much of its time, that head of the shark is like a metal detector. And it can see things through that head of his that sends out signals that are hidden beneath the surface of the ocean floors. Isn't that incredible? When I was on a backpacking trip last year, I sat for I don't know how long, but for quite a while, watching a woodpecker work its way around a, a pine tree as he had flick off a piece of bark and then hammer, hammer, hammer and get a bug out and then move around the tree and flick off a piece of bark. Hammer, hammer, hammer. I mean, I could have stood there for hours watching this thing. It was fascinating. What was really cool is that there was a little woodpecker next to a big woodpecker and it was like the mama was teaching the baby. This is how it works. Watch me. Everywhere the mama went, here went the baby. Everywhere the mama went, here went the baby. It was fascinating. But one of the things that's interesting about woodpeckers is that they have a pocket of air that surrounds their brain. So that as they beat their head up against that tree, they can survive. That's an important feature for a woodpecker, right? The other thing that's interesting is they got a little barb on their tongue so that when they stick that long tongue inside of a tree, they can pull out a grub or a worm inside the tree. Isn't that cool? How about this? We live in West Texas, so you've probably seen one of these. Anybody seen a possum? around ever seen one play dead did you know that that possum playing dead when he does that it is totally and completely not on purpose <laughs> it is a survival instinct you've seen fainting goat goats it's the same things happening with a possum when there is something of extreme fear it goes unconscious involuntarily and while unconscious, involuntarily, it emits an odor 
that smells like a dead possum to maximize the effect. Isn't that incredible? And, and those things are all a part of God's creative design. And as amazing as those things are, they don't even begin to compare with the miracle of the human body. There is nothing that has or ever will exist in the world that compares with the information processing that occurs in your brain. Impossible. In fact, here's how significant it is. In one day, now get this, in one day, your brain processes more information than a million times the amount of information contained in all the libraries that exist in the world in one day. A million times that. It's incredible. In, in just 13 seconds, your body reproduces as many cells as there are people in the United States. 13 seconds. In one day, your blood travels 12,000 miles, which is enough to go from coast to coast four different times. It's incredible. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and it's that imagery that I think Paul intends for you to have to appreciate the significance of God's creative design and power. But then he goes on and says that even the diversity of the life that we see on earth and in humans and animals and birds and fish, it doesn't even compare to what exists within the heavenly hosts. If you've ever, how many of you have ever listened to uh, Louis Giglio on uh, the How Great Is Our God talk about the universe and its vastness? If you have not, you need to. Just go to YouTube, Google, or, or Google, but put in Louis Giglio, How Great Is Our God, and watch it. It'll be worth every second. And I want to take something out of that that he communicates that I think is fascinating. He talks about three specific stars, the first one being our sun. Well, there it is. There's our sun. As many of you might know, the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. And he has this neat little saying that he has in his little video. He talks about the earth. And he says, if the earth were the size of a golf ball, okay, so everybody, here's the earth. Look real close and find yourself. Everybody see where you are? Okay, but I want you to keep this in mind, okay? If the earth were the size of a golf ball, you could fit 960,000 earths inside our sun. Is that amazing? 960,000 of earths. Okay, let me give you another one. This star is called Betelgeuse. It's up there in the top left. Yeah, top left, Betelgeuse, all right? If the earth were the size of a golf ball, okay, Betelgeuse would be the size of six empire state buildings stacked one on top of the other. So, picture this in your mind, taking this golf ball, setting it on the base of the empire state building, and then imagining six of those stacked one on top of the other. That's how big that star is. You can fit inside of, of Betelgeuse 262 trillion Earths. That's how big that star is. You impressed? Okay, I'm going to give you one more. Okay, I've got one more for you then. All right? This star is called Musifi. Okay, this is what it looks like from the Hubble telescope. Musifi. 
all right? If the earth were the size of a golf ball, you could fit 2.7 quadrillion earth inside of Musifi. Now, most of us hear the word quadrillion. We have, I have no idea what that means, okay? So let me put it in perspective. A million seconds, okay? A million seconds. Anybody know how long ago that was? A million seconds ago? 12 days. A million seconds is about 12 days ago. All right? So, one quadrillion seconds, 30,800,000 years ago. Quadrillion. You could fit 2.7 quadrillion Earths inside of that star. Still see yourself on this golf ball? I want you to appreciate the significance of the vastness of our earth and how small we are in comparison. Now you understand why the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above the works of his hands. It's an infinite vastness that our minds, our little finite minds, cannot possibly comprehend. But here's the key. Our God spoke it all into existence with a word. With a word. Our God, as He created all that exists, spoke it into existence. Let it be, and it was done. That's how big our God is. And so Paul is using this imagery not to explain how the resurrection occurs, but to help us appreciate that, in fact, it can. Because clearly, there are no limits to the creative power and design of the God we serve. And if he can do that with the infinite vastness of the universe in which we live, then transforming our body into something new and different is no big deal. We need to look at the amazing wonder of God's creative design and know that that's the God we serve and be able to trust that He can do all things, including taking that seed and make it into a flower, taking this body and transforming it into something very different and altogether new and more beautiful than we have ever, ever known. Look at how it continues in verse 42. So also the resurrection. He's used this imagery and now he's going to go to his point. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are from the earth. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are from the heavenly. And just as we have been born in the image of the earth, 
so shall we bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren. The flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I believe everything that Paul is trying to communicate through this imagery comes down to this. It's a passage that we know from the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is this, that, that God has placed eternity into the hearts of all mankind. Just like that little nondescript seed was transformed into a, a glorious, beautiful flower, so too will we be resurrected into a new and glorious life. An existence that far exceeds anything that we could have ever experienced or imagined in the limits of this body of flesh and bone. Because as Paul describes in verse 43, our existence on earth is filled, what does he say, with corruption, with weakness, with frailty. But our resurrected body is, is, is altogether different. And, and it's important to understand that we're not talking about just some kind of new improved version of the old thing. I've been shopping for cars recently because Graham's going to be driving. So we're going to be a three-car family. That's scary. But here's one of the things I realized as I've, as I've shopped for cars. New models of cars are the same car with just a few extra bells and whistles. That's all it is. When you think about the resurrected body, don't think new model. <laughs> think something altogether different. In fact, I want you to think of a passage in 2 Corinthians. You don't need to t turn there, but I just want you to listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is the body which is our house, when it's torn down, when it de decays, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You see, a building is not an improved tent, is it? It's altogether different. It's different materials. It's different engineering. And my wife will be the first to tell you, living your lifetime inside of a house is a whole lot better than living your lifetime inside of a tent. They're two different things. There's no comparison. And so it is with your earthly body compared to what God has in store in heaven. But please don't miss the point of how all this is possible because as Paul's already said more than once, if Christ is not raised from the dead, none of this is true. It's impossible. The power of the resurrection is proof of the unlimited power of God. He says in verse 45 so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last. Adam, which is Jesus, became a, a life-giving spirit. Paul is making the point that the transformation that we are discussing as we look at the resurrection is only made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This life that we live is corrupted by sin. It's what we have all inherited from Adam every single day one of us and apart from Christ that is all we will ever know I do believe still that we were all created for eternity 
But here's the deal. Apart from faith in Christ, it will be separated from the one who has the power to transform you into a new and glorious life. And that version of eternity, unredeemed and separated from God, is literally a living hell. And it is just as real as the glory of heaven. We have all been created for eternity. And only Jesus, only Jesus Christ has the power to change your eternal destiny. His resurrection validated His payment for our sin. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, that payment is credited to our account. There's a great passage in Romans chapter 8. I just want to read this to you. Listen carefully to what Paul is describing here about what happens on the basis of faith. He says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law instead of death. For what the law could not do, as weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that our flesh is a lot like that seed. It has no power in and of itself to spring to life. Not even the law and all that it gives us is able to bring life out of our deadness that we were all born in because of sin. Jesus Christ has to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You see, God alone, as we've seen in this passage, is the only one who has the power to bring forth new life. And how does He do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was His promise. That was the, the promise of Christ, right? Here's something that I thought was fascinating as I thought about our passage. You I want you to go back to Genesis, and I want you to think about the description of creation, and specifically when God created man out of the dust of the earth. You remember? Do you remember how God made man come to life? How did he do it? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and mankind lived. All right. Now I want you to think about this, and we'll look at this passage in a minute, but what was the th- what, I want you to think about what Jesus said to his disciples the very first time he saw them in his new and resurrected body. Let's look at it together. This one's worth it. John chapter 20. Let's look at this together. John chapter 20. Verse 19. Okay? The disciples are huddled in a room afraid because Jesus has died. And now they... Their lives are at risk because they stood for a man who's been crucified as a criminal. Okay, So here they are huddled up in this room. Let's look at what happens. Verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, 
And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, look at what happens. He breathed on him and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Because what you're seeing here is the reality of God's promise fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who can bring new life only through the work of the Holy Spirit once Jesus had been dead, buried, and raised again. And his first words to his disciples is, you are now alive through the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's how life happens. There's a passage in Ephesians that says that when we believe in the gospel, it says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It goes on to say that it's a pledge of our inheritance with a, a view of our redemption to come. The present of the Spirit guarantees the hope of eternal life. It's the fulfillment of that promise. We no longer live in the image of Adam under the slavery to sin. We are made new through the presence of the Holy Spirit to, to live by the, the power of the Holy Spirit and to one day be resurrected as Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, demonstrated in the power of God. Don't miss that. The only truth that has the power to change your eternal destiny is this. The truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That He was buried and that He raised again in new life to overcome the power of death and to then give to those who trust in Him that power of new life through the presence of of the Holy Spirit. So Paul doesn't explain how it happens, but I think he makes a pretty compelling case that it can. Because what's true for Jesus is equally true for those who put their trust in him. So here's what I want you to do by way of application, okay? I want you to go take those seeds and I want you to plant them. Plant them somewhere where you can watch them grow. And I want you to think, when you see those flowers come up, and for that matter, anytime you see flowers, like you see a, a field of flowers, next time you see those flowers, I want you to think about the resurrection. I want you to think back to those seeds that you had this morning that look nothing like the flowers that they will one day become. But because of God's power to bring life, who, or, or divinely ordain those to, to take something that looked nothing like it would become, but then to become something altogether different, beautiful, new. I want you to think about the resurrection every time you see one of those flowers. Let it be a visual reminder of God's power to transform your life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you think about that flower, I do want to remind you of this. That presence of the Holy Spirit is not something that just awaits us at some future time in heaven. It exists within you through faith right here, right now. 
Don't miss that point. Don't be caught up like the Corinthians is assuming that something's yet to come, but realize that what God has promised is made real for you right here, right now. So through the work of the Holy Spirit, you are being conformed into the image of His Son so that when they see you, they see the life of Christ in you. you he transforms us by the renewing of our mind. Why? So that we can show the world what the will of God is, what is true and perfect and good. He shows us what forgiveness looks like, what grace looks like, what hope looks like. See, even though the fullness of redemption is yet to come, we should live right now with great purpose and conviction because of what God has made possible through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've been given a mission. And we have within us a power of the Spirit that has the ability to influence the eternal destiny of another person. That's a big deal, right? So why would we want to, in some way, harness that? Why wouldn't we want it to live it to the fullest? So when you see a flower, I want you to think about what it looks like to radiate, like that flower, the goodness of God's design. At night, I want you to go look at the stars. And when you see the stars, I want you to think about how they proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. I want you to not be distracted by the things of this world that you lose focus on what should matter most. Who Jesus is, what He did, and what difference that should make in your life. Now and for all eternity. That's a big deal. And we need to live according to that truth. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for the chance to be in your word this morning. To, to just be able to appreciate the, the imagery of, of what's communicated to help us in our human understanding. Appreciate in some small way divine truths. Miraculous truths promises of things that we can't fully comprehend, but we can have great conviction of in faith. In large part, in fact, in full part, due to what we know and believe to be true about who Christ is and what He came to do. That He was crucified for our sins. That He was dead and buried, but He rose to new life. And then we put our faith and trust in Him so too it will be with us. That that Spirit that He promised to bring life would then reside in us through faith and one day transform us to something new and completely different than we have ever known in this life of flesh and bone. And until that day comes, may we live with great purpose. May we live with great hope. May we live in such a way that our lives proclaim the goodness of the One who has saved us. The excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.